Well, friends, I, I wonder what is the news that you could get today that would suddenly make today the worst day of your life? It's a sober thought, isn't it? It might be the death of a loved one. It might be finding out that there has been a betrayal so deep in your marriage that it feels like your soul is being torn in two. It might be the loss of a job. Whatever it is, it doesn't really bear thinking about, does it? I mean, death, betrayal and a loss of security are things that will rattle the most grounded and the most secure of us. So we live as if these things will never really happen to us. The fact is, they all will. Probably not at the same time, but every human being who's lived just for more than a few years, sadly, comes to know the first pain of, uh, comes to know firsthand the, the pain of death. That starts when your first pet dies. Or, or the pain of betrayal. That starts in the, school, in the schoolyard. Or the sting of insecurity. For children, that starts the first time they see their parents argue. The question I want us to wrestle with today is this. How does life look when everything you know is turned upside down? How do we face life when everything we hold dear is ripped from our grasp? Now, I don't know any of you, but I do know there'll be some here who know exactly what this feels like. There'll be some here this morning who carry wounds that are deeper than most. But this will all come to us at one time. So that is what we're going to wrestle with today. And, and you know, it's interesting. It's, it's almost ironic that such a serious topic comes to us from a classic Disney text from the Bible. You do know what a Disney text is, don't you? Now, it's one of those passages that Disney has or will turn into a movie, such as the resonance in the story with our culture today. Now, the fact is, the passage we're looking at today, Disney haven't done work on yet, but Andrew Lloyd Webber certainly has, and his uh, musical uh, is called Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Some of you might have seen that. Uh, as entertaining as this musical is, you may not be surprised to know it doesn't quite nail the main parts of the text. So that's what we're going to attempt to do today uh, as we consider this remarkable story that the Bible gives us. So today, what we're, going to, we're going to meet a man who wrestles with death, uh, who wrestles with betrayal, who wrestles with a loss of security, not over his life, but all at the same time. Uh, and in today's story, uh, we're going to see three things. Firstly, we're going to see the worst month of Joseph's life. Then we're going to see the silence of God. And then we'll finish by looking at together God's view of suffering. So friends, we, uh, if you can have Genesis chapter 37 open in front of you, that will be enormously helpful. I'm going to be pointing out particular things just to, uh, to show you uh, that I'm not making it up so you can see that God says it before I do. Um, but we're going to be diving into Genesis and we're going to start our story by hearing about an, a man named Jacob. Jacob. Now let's get our bearings. Let me remind you where he fits in. Uh, you might remember in Genesis that there is a story of a man who wrestled and struggled and fought his way through life until God wrestled and struggled and fought with him. Do you, do you remember that guy? The one who had his hip uh, ripped out of its socket? The man who wrestled an angel and ended up with a limp? That's this bloke. That's Jacob. What we read about him earlier is that God broke him. 
God broke him. God brought him to the end of himself and crippled him and gave him a new life and a new name. That Jacob, one of the big three, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, to whom God made covenants or promises. And today, where we're up to in chapter 37 of Genesis, our story shifts generations from father to son, from Jacob to Joseph. And from this point on in Genesis, it will be Joseph who carries the storyline forward. Now, what we come to learn here is that Joseph is one of 12 sons that Jacob has, and he is the youngest. What we have in Genesis 37 is a story which includes or contains uh, episode after episode that show things for this young Joseph going from bad to worse. Now, Joseph's terrible month starts in verse 2. Can you have a look at that? We read here, don't we, that Joseph, he's a young man of only 17, and probably like me and every other male at 17, he's precocious, he's full of zeal and full of himself, And he's been out tending the flocks with his brothers. And then we read, and Joseph brought their father a bad report about them, talking about his brothers. Now, I'm not sure how things work in your family, but let me tell you, in my family, dobbers aren't too popular. In fact, we used to have a rule in the Stedman house, which was, the person who tells the tale gets the smack. It was an attempt to eradicate the scourge of dobbing that was going on, but it wasn't well thought through because as we wrestled with it, we soon realized that if there was one child about to get clobbered over the head with the leg of a doll from another and the child about to be assaulted cries out, Mum, I'm about to be hit, and then we came and smacked the person who cried out, there's a miscarriage of justice. The bottom line is it didn't work, so we got rid of that. The point is, no one likes a dobber. Now, there's an adult version to this. It's called a whistleblower. Have you noticed that no one likes them either? Even when proved right and righteous, we're still very suspicious, aren't we? No, they weren't popular today, and they certainly weren't 3,600 years ago. No one loves a dobber. But more than that, no one loves parental favoritism either, do they? Have a look at verse 3. Now Israel, that's Jacob, who had his name changed, that's Joseph's father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he'd been born to him in his old age. Now, brothers and sisters, this is turning into a very toxic mix, actually. There might even be some here today who still carry the pain that's linked to a a sense or reality that their parents liked, loved, favoured one sibling above you. That's a deep wound to carry, and it raises powerful emotions in people, even years later. And it is for these brothers, because verse 4, look at that, tells us that Israel, that's Jacob, had made an ornate robe for Joseph... When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. The story goes on. Joseph has a dream, which he boldly, foolishly, tells his brothers. We're told their reaction to the dream before we find out what the dream is. Verse 5, Joseph had a dream when he told his brothers they hated him all the more. You sort of understand when we hear the dream in sketch. He says to his brothers, look, we're out collecting wheat and we all got a bit uh, and your bunches of wheat, they were nice, but they bowed down to the one I collected. How about that? What do you think? They hated him all the more. And he has another dream. He says, look, you know, the sun and the moon and uh, the 11 stars bowed down to me, representing his mom, dad, his 11 brothers. Well, what a great dream to have. What do you think? And we're told the brothers were jealous whilst the father parked it in the back of his mind. 
Now, take a step back from the story. You see how it's building, right? You see how it's building day after day, incident after incident. And and it's not hard to imagine what's going to happen when arrogance and pride come headlong into jealousy and hatred and favoritism. Well, the climax for our story comes as Joseph sent out one day uh, to find his brothers and they're out grazing. And in verse 20, see that? We see the culmination of all the frustration, jealousy and hatred. The brothers say, come now, let's kill him, throw him into one of these cisterns and say a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Now, one brother, Reuben, tries to save him, actually, to no avail. They take off his coat throw Joseph down a well. At this point, the story seems to take an unusual turn. It seems that the brothers, have all of a sudden, they've found some morality. Uh, they've realised that what they're doing is not right. Don't be fooled by their mercy. This is mercenary mercy. So the reason they reconsider the murder is seen in their question in verse 26. Have a look at that. What do we gain by killing him? What they mean is, look, we could kill him, Or we could do the same thing, get rid of him and make money on the side. Now, this is mercenary mercy we're seeing here. In any case, that's what they do. And in verse 28, see that? Joseph is essentially killed off. He's sold to foreign Ishmaelites who take him off to a foreign land. And Joseph started the month as heir to an apparent fabulous fortune. He ended the month naked as a slave. (laughs) This is indeed the worst month of Joseph's life. That's the story. That's Genesis 37. I wonder if you noticed something really striking here. Not so much what was in the story, but actually what wasn't in the story. Did you notice? God is not in the story. That's weird, isn't it? He's not there. The whole of chapter 37, as Joseph endures the hardest period of his life, God's not mentioned. God doesn't speak. God isn't seen. In fact, we're not told that God is with Joseph at all in this period. That's not going to happen until chapter 39, verse 2, where we're told, the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. But friends, that's the next chapter of his life. That's the next season. By this stage, he's in Egypt. It's months later, maybe a year later. And so, So it raises the question for us, which is this. Why was God not with Joseph when his brothers were tearing him apart? Why was God not with Joseph when Joseph was at his lowest point? Is God really only there when things are going well? And if God isn't there in the hardest times, then is he there at all? I hope you've considered that, actually. Because that is the argument that those who don't share your faith perspective will come at you with. Yeah, you believe in Jesus, that's fine when you live in you know, a beautiful part of Sydney like Orange Park. Have you ever been through a really... It's much harder then. So here's the question this raises for us. It's this. Where is God 
in our darkest moments, when all we feel is not His presence, but His silence. You know, every 18 months or so, I head off to teach theology in Africa, uh, and as we were called to pray for the world just before, I was praying for Zimbabwe, which is where I've been the last few years. If you've been to churches in Zimbabwe, you'll know that Christianity in Zimbabwe is very noisy. Very noisy. There are so-called prophets prophesying. There are, in a church like this, people praying out loud to God all at once. There are blessings and wealth and health being named and claimed in abundance. There are amens given in sermons. Amen? Amen. Amen. Hopeless. You're as bad as Norwest. They're much better in Zimbabwe. Here's the thing. That world of Christianity that you'll find in parts of Africa, that noisy world, could not be further from what Joseph experiences here. And for many of you, it couldn't be further from what you have experienced as well. You know, it was 14 years ago now that I went through uh, one of the hardest times I've ever faced. I was in first year at Theological College, uh, and it was a time when, due to a nerve injury that I'd sustained playing football uh, in my neck and face, I found myself ultimately, ultimately in a place where my emotions would tell me things that my mind knew was not the case. My emotions and my intellect were at odds with each other. Now, some of you sitting here will know exactly what I mean. So, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And for someone who had spent a lifetime depending on the reliability of my emotions and rationality working together, it grew to be a very dark period. And at that time, I read the Psalms over and over and over. Like I'd never read the Psalms before, actually. And the Psalm that I read more than any other Psalm was Psalm 130, which is on the screen now. It goes like this. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. And I'd love to tell you right now that God just spoke to me so clearly through that time. But the fact is, almost all the times that I was there reading the Psalms, it just felt like I was just reading the Psalms. It was very lonely. And I remember, clearly remember, first year more college, trying to be a minister. I had a choice at that time. I had the choice of saying, I cannot hear nor feel the presence of God. Therefore, there is no God. Or at least, no God worth following. Or I had the choice of believing what the Apostle Peter said when so many other disciples were walking away from Jesus during a hard time, Jesus said to Peter, are you going to walk away too, Peter? And Peter said to Jesus, where else have I got to go? You have the words of eternal life. You know, that was the choice I remember distinctly having to make. That was 14 years ago. 
And, and you need to know that God did not speak to me through that time like I wanted Him to speak to me at that time. But God did teach me at that time. He taught me that the silence of God is not the absence of God. You will know that suffering is one of the great challenges of life. Not merely to endure or even to watch a loved one, perhaps even someone unknown endure. But suffering is a great challenge to even understand, to explain. And to find a way to comfortably coexist alongside it. Now just to be clear, uh, the challenge of suffering that we all feel is not merely a challenge for Christians. It is a challenge for everyone. You know, every now and then I'll find myself speaking to someone who's not a Christian about suffering and they'll say, well, how is it as a Christian that you give an account for all the suffering in the world? And I say, look, it's a fair question. I'll answer that, but let me ask you a question first. How do you? (laughs) How do you give an account for it? No, no, suffering is a completely universal and problematic issue for everyone. And the Bible does address it, and we'll get to that in a moment, but... Before we get there, I want to put before you two reasonably common attempts to account for suffering in the world that others believe. Now, the first will be quite familiar to you, uh, as it's a very recent perspective. This is the perspective uh, of some of the new atheists, you will have heard heard of them, Dawkins and so on, uh, who bring a deeply scientific way of thinking to every part of life. Now, the, the best known proponent of this view would have to be Richard Dawkins, and maybe you've heard this quote before, it's a great one. It's out of his book, River Out of Eden, and it's on the screen. This is what Dawkins says. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, and other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason to it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at the bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is. And we dance to its music. Brilliantly written, isn't it? Now, that might sound callous to some of you, but Dawkins would say to you in response, it's just life. And what he would claim is that we actually show a philosophical maturity when we're able to sit comfortably with that reality, when we're able to grow out of that deep, childlike need we have to believe there's someone out there who knows or cares about us. That is one perspective on suffering you'll find in the world. Now, there's a second perspective you probably won't be as familiar with. It's actually a lot older than Dawkins' perspective, and it is believed and adhered to uh, by many, many more people than new atheists. It is the Buddhist view of suffering. There's about 500 million Buddhists in the world, about 8% of the world's population. And the story is told of Issa. Some of you might have heard of him, the 18th century haiku poet from Japan. Now, through a series of uh, sad events... uh, Uh, Issa's wife and his five children all died, not at the same time, but over a few years. And grieving each time, he went to the Zen master and received the same consolation from the Zen Buddhist master, which was this. Remember, the world is due. Due. 
that wet stuff on the grass. Dew. Transient and momentary. The sun rises, the heat comes, and the dew is gone. So too, in Buddhism, is suffering and death in this world of illusion. And and the mistake everyone makes, us humans, is to become too emotionally tied to this world. Remember, the world is due. Be more detached. Transcend that desire to engage in mourning, for that will only prolong your grief. Well, after one of his children died, Issa went home from his meeting with the Buddhist Zen master, unconsoled. And it was at that point that he wrote one of his most famous poems. Translated into English, it says this, it's on the screen. The world is due. The world is due. And yet, and yet. You see, the entire logic of Buddhism is captured by the two two first lines. Whereas the yearning of a father's heart is captured in the second two. Do you see what I mean? Suffering is a challenge that everyone has to face. And sometimes for those of us who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, God seems silent. But Joseph shows us how we're to understand all of this. And it's not in chapter 37 that we find the answer, but in 45, that second reading we heard. So let me just give you a bit of background. By chapter 45, many years have now gone by, and due to a famine uh, in the land, all of Joseph's brothers have made their way into Egypt looking for food. You'll know the story. And there they find their brother, who they tried to kill as the second most powerful man in the whole country. This is what we read. It's on the screen. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And and now, do not be distressed, and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Now, hang on, hang on, because that sounds to me like a very different interpretation of what happened out in the field with the Technicolor Dreamcoat and the well and the Ishmaelites. What's happened? Now, perhaps with a bit of time and a desire to be reunited with his family and now living in a life of comfort, Joseph is looking back on history and his family with rose-colored glasses. But for people who take the Bible seriously, the question has to be, doesn't it, which version's true? Is it chapter 37? Is it chapter 45? Is it the version in the fields or the version in Egypt? And the answer is, both are true. Both are true. The brothers acted in great evil, and tried to murder their sibling, and God seemed quiet at the time. What we learn in chapter 45 is that despite God's silence, God was at work the whole time, weaving his plans, his purposes, his ways through Joseph and his world. Friends, what we learn is that in God's remarkable economy, God weaves life out of death. 
The silence of God is not the absence of God. Of course, the ultimate example of this comes to us not from the Old Testament at all, but the New Testament. And it's in the New Testament that we read about these two seemingly incompatible realities of gross evil on the one hand and yet God's purposes on the other. And they come together in a speech that Peter makes to the crowds of Jewish men who were involved in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It was our third reading. This is what we we heard read. Peter says this, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, was handed over to you by God's set purposes and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now hang on. Which version's true? Did Jesus go to the cross because of God's set purposes and foreknowledge? Or did Jesus go to the cross because of the wickedness of men who nailed him there? The answer is, both are true. Do you see the way that Peter is able to hold together these two seemingly incongruous realities? God handed Jesus over to these men by his own set purposes and foreknowledge. That is, he knew he was going to do it. It was his plan. And you, with the help of wicked men, did great evil. You murdered the Son of God by nailing him to a cross. Can you see how things work in God's economy? Even evil in this world, even evil is a tool in God's hand for His purposes to be unfolded. Friends, what we see in Acts 2, what we see in Genesis 37, is that the sin of man and the evil in this world will never thwart the plans of God. But the sin of man and the evil of this world can cause us to forget the plans of God. I don't know any of you. I don't know any of you. But the fact is that there will be people in this church right now who have children born with special needs who have marriages that are but a shadow of what you thought they might be. Some here will have bosses who are almost abusive in the way they speak to you and they crush your soul. There will be relationships in your life so fractured that you wonder if and how they will ever be reconciled. And these things can eat at us. They can war against us. They can bring doubts to the surface and they can undermine our certainty that God holds all things. And often it seems that God is distant, if not silent. Does He know? Does He care? Is He there? The answer has to be, and I'm going to finish on this, look at Jesus. Look at the very Son of God who himself felt like his father had deserted him, but who also knew that that was the way that God had planned to pour forgiveness out upon all who turned to Jesus in repentance and faith. Now, please don't miss him at this point. I'm not saying that your suffering is insignificant because of Jesus' death for you. I'm not saying that. I'm actually saying the opposite. 
I'm saying that Jesus' death for you is the way you are to interpret all suffering. For there we see the ultimate plan of God that shows us that despite what is going on, no matter how hard it is to get our head around it, we know the God who brings life from death. My brothers and sisters, I don't know where you sit today, but this I know and I pray you do as well. The silence of God is not the absence of God. And if you are feeling at this time, some of you will be, if you're feeling at this time you're undergoing enormous upheaval and pain and suffering, just know that in God's economy, what men meant for evil, God intends for good. Let us pray. Good and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us through your word, that you do not leave us alone and isolated, but that in your word you come near to us. And yet, Father, despite that, there are still times we feel alone, isolated, devastated. Suffering is a great challenge for us. And sometimes the answers we most seek will never be made clear to us. Father, thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he lived the life and died the death we should have, that we might live. But we also thank you that as we look at him, we see how your Father works. We see that God takes seeming evil and weaves his purposes through it for his glory and honour. Will you help us believe this and feel this when we go through our hardest times as well? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.